You know, it's interesting. There's a there's a road to happiness, and the road to happiness is counterintuitive to what we think it is. And what I, what do I mean by that? Uh, we think that happiness comes when uh, life is easy, when resources are plentiful, when people are nice to us, when things are going well, when nothing bad happens. And we think happiness is when other people take care of me and <laughs> look out for me. And I don't know about you, but here's what I found. That doesn't always happen in my life. And uh, I'm very aware of it, as probably you are too. But we're going to see that the path to happiness is counterintuitive to what we think it is. And the passage we're going to look at today really speaks to that. And it's found in Philippians chapter 2 on page 900. If you don't have a, a Bible, there's a chair Bible. And you can just pull that out and go to page 900. And I'm going to be in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 1. I'm going to f- read the first 11 verses. Now, I don't, you know me. I don't always say this. But I have said it for some time. And I will say it this weekend. This is one of the most important, richest passages in all of the Scripture. This is one of the most important and richest scriptures in all of all of the, of all of the, of all the scriptures. This is one of the most important. It's one of the greatest passages in all of the Bible, and I don't say that lightly. And I'm not going to do it justice tonight. You could have a whole year. You could spend a whole year on the implications of what Paul's talking about in this passage. We're going to read through it. We're going to explain it a little bit, and then we're going to make some application. That's where we're going to go this weekend. So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from His love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one another with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Now, the next couple of verses kind of go to a place where it's kind of, many scholars believe it's an earlier hymn or poem. And he says this, Paul says, You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to a place of of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in this passage, what we see is the mindset and motives of Jesus Christ. You know, we see his deepest thoughts. And as we understand how he approached life as he walked this earth, we can adopt his mindset. That's essentially what we want to look at. 
And basically what Paul says, if God has done anything for you, Paul tells us, you must have the same attitude as Jesus Christ. If he's done anything for you, have the attitude that Christ had. If, you, if he's been any benefit, if he's been good to you, if he's sacrificed for you, if he's loved you, if he's, free, if he's done anything for you, then have his attitude. And there's three critical truths that, that uh, Paul gives us about Jesus in this passage. And, and they're really, really important. And this is where we're going to get a little theological, but it's really important that you hear this. The first one is this. Paul is saying that Jesus is God. Not Jesus became God. Not Jesus was a little God. He wasn't a lower God. He wasn't, he, he wasn't created by God. He was not one of many gods. He is Almighty God. He always has been and always will be Almighty God. Notice uh, this is what he says. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is the, the uh, different translation of what we just read. And the idea is that this phrase that is used in this, this Greek word for form, he was of the form of God. What does he mean by that? The, the word is a Greek word morphe, and, and basically what it means is this. It's speaking of his essence, his deity, his divinity. Um, deity is what makes God God. God is a deity, right? He didn't become God. He's always been, been God. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is he didn't just become God and he, he's always been God. Some, now, some people would say, well, I deny the deity of Jesus Christ. I don't believe that Jesus is God. They say that he never claimed to be God when he was on this earth. He was a good teacher. He was a good person. He was a leader. Uh, but he never claimed to be God. Maybe he was a prophet, but he was never, he never claimed to be God. Now, here's the thing with that. Paul wrote uh, the book of Philippians probably around 20 years after Christ. Okay, walked on this earth after his ascension, probably about 20 years or so. This poem that we just read, it speaks of Jesus, was something that Paul used in his letter. It probably was a poem or a, a reading, a, a writing, a saying, uh, somebody had put it together. And basically what it was is it was a statement about who Jesus is. And it was used by the early church. So meaning that this section of Philippians was even earlier than Philippians. That Paul is borrowing that and he's putting it under the, under the superintendent uh, work of the Holy Spirit. So Paul is quoting a poem of the church and, and including it in his letter, which makes these words even earlier. And, in fact, Jesus did claim to be God. <laughs> and one time, he, he basically said before Abraham was... I am already. <laughs> I, I existed before Abraham. And the people understood what he was saying because they picked up stones to stone him. And then he kind of disappeared from their sight. So uh, he did claim to be God. And G, G, now it says that he didn't cling to this. Uh, he didn't grasp on it, uh, his deity. Well, he didn't go after something he didn't have. That's the point Paul's making. He didn't cling to it or grasp to it. He didn't have to. He already had it. You don't have to grasp for or cling on something you don't have. You cling on to a ledge that you may be falling from when you don't have control. You, you grasp something that is, that is not yours yet. This is something that he already had. So he didn't have to cling on it. He didn't have to hold to it. Now, how should this fact when Paul says that Jesus has always been and always will be God, Almighty, Deity. How should that, if He is God, 
you need to be a whole lot more optimistic in your life. Now, why do I say that? You have to be optimistic about your future because he is God and he says, I love you. I have a plan for you. Um, and I, I know you and I get you. And, and, and I have a plan. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm going to go to make a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. If he's God, this is pretty good stuff. This is pretty good news. This, this helps me to be optimistic no matter what my circumstances might be. Right? Uh, why are you fretting and carrying on all the time? Jesus said, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, why do you worry about food and why do you worry about clothing? You know, the birds don't worry and, and, and the, uh, the, uh, the flowers are here today and they're gone tomorrow. And if God takes care of them, won't he take care of you? His point is, I'm God and I love you and I love you more than the birds and more than the flowers because you're created in my image. If I love you that much and if I am God, then you should be pretty optimistic about how things work and how things are going to turn out. You shouldn't get down and discouraged because I'm God and I'm on your side. Uh, I think the best way to put it, Paul put it in Romans 8.31. He says this, What shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? That's hope. That's joy. It's optimistic, right? So the first part that Paul says is Jesus is God. Secondly, he says Jesus became human. He became human. God became man, we say. Not only is he God, but he is the God-man. Now, there's a key grammatical point that Paul's making here in this passage. And uh, here's what he's saying. He's saying this. He's saying, having been God... Uh, Or he's not saying this. He's not saying, having been God, he traded his godness for humanness. He's not saying that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, being God, he added humanness. He added being unhuman. He became a human. Being God, he also became human. In other words, he never stopped being God, but he became human. He took on human flesh. He became the God-man, both human and divine at once. Paul summarizes it beautifully in one statement in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Here's what he says. In Christ lives all the fullness of God, that's his deity, in a human body. So there's the balance that he is the God-man. He's fully God and fully human. That's, the, that's always been the, the orthodox church statement of Jesus, that he's both God, he's the God-man. He's fully God and fully human. The theological point here is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Now, this is really important because this is the the cult-sniffing concept. You'll know a cult the minute that they deny this. They will deny that Jesus is fully God, God Almighty. He always has been, always will be God, and he is fully man. He became fully man. So that, that's where the cults will. And they don't really deny his humanity. They deny his deity. They say, well, he's a god. He's a little god. Little g. Well, he's not a little g. <laughs> you know, he's not a little g. And so anybody who rejects that Jesus is fully God and fully human has always been seen by the Orthodox Church as a cult. So there'd be a number of groups in our community that would believe they, they would deny the Trinity. They would deny the deity and the humanity of Christ. 
that he's the God-man. Now, they would use that phrase, but they're using it, and they're very couched and very careful about how they do it. Paul clearly says that Jesus always was and always will be God, and that he became a man. Now, this has really uh, great implications because it means that God not only values the spiritual, but he values the material world, right? So the spiritual world is important, but the material world, the physical world is important. And God doesn't say, well, the spiritual is more important than the physical, or he doesn't say the physical is more important than the spiritual. Basically what he says, because Jesus is the God man, that both, both are good. Both are good. What did he say when he made the heavens and the earth? God rested and said it is good, right? (laughs) So there it is. Um, Now that means... That your future will consist of both a physical and a spiritual existence. We often think of heaven. You say, well, I'm not really excited about heaven. I don't want to be some spirit floating around there. Well, that's the Eastern view of maybe whatever view that may be. But it's not the Christian view. The Christian view basically says that we have a resurrected body, physical. And then we're going to be living in a physical world. And the physical world is going to be a recreated heaven that comes down to a recreated earth it's physical it's spiritual and so this means uh that uh we are living we're going to live in both a physical and a spiritual existence this also means that jesus understands you he knows what it's like to get tired he knows what it's like to be hungry he knows what it's like to be discouraged and betrayed he knows what it's like to um suffer face death he knows he knows what it's like to have unanswered prayer father why have you forsaken me he knows what it is to have days of trouble and tribulation he understands you have you ever had a friend who's trying to kind of empathize with you and you're going through a difficult time and they say yeah i know and you go you don't know you don't know. But somebody else who's gone through the same thing and they say, I know. You say, yeah, you do. In fact, you went through it worse than I did. You get it, right? And that's, that's the good news. Um, what does this mean? That means that heaven means that we'll give and give, we'll give and get hugs in heaven. Some of you are huggers, some of you aren't. Maybe you'll handshake. I don't know. Maybe you'll be over it when you get to heaven and you'll be a hugger. Who knows? It's, we will eat and drink in heaven. Uh, we'll have a, a functioning glorified body, meaning it will be fit for heaven and fit for eternity. We will sing. We will play. We will work. We will, we will, live, we will live more fully than we've ever lived before. In fact, we'll look back at this existence on earth and say, I was in a coma compared to where I am right now. The physical and the spiritual working together in perfect harmony. So, you, you can see the richness of this passage. Paul basically says, Jesus is God. Jesus became human. And then number three, Jesus came as a servant. He came as a servant. He could have come in power and majesty and glory. He could have, he could have come as a king, a ruler, a commander. Instead, what does he do? He comes as a servant this passage is about a servant 
Jesus became a servant by emptying himself of his prerogatives, his priorities, and his, his glory. He didn't stop being God. Have you ever seen that show? Because some people say, well, I don't understand it. I don't understand how God can become man. And isn't he, you know, what about being omnipresent and omniscient, meaning everywhere and knowing everything? How does that all work? And, and that, we don't have the time to delve into that, but theologians have written volumes on that. But let's, let's just take it to the pop culture level. Some of you have watched that show, Undercover Boss. You know, that's the one where the owner goes to the franchises of a restaurant or something and puts on a terribly awful-looking wig that anybody in their right mind would know it's a wig, and uh, it's some sort of false disguise, but they never seem to figure it out, and they never figure out it's the boss. And he's there working behind the scenes, doing the, the crummy jobs that nobody likes, working with people who are doing that, and he learns about the company and decides to make changes. That's the essence of the show. Now, if you leave here today and think, I should watch that show, and that's the only thing you take from this sermon. I have totally failed. But the point is, he has the power. He is over the company. He could at any moment say, you're fired. Well, maybe that's Donald Trump. I don't know. Um, but my point is, uh, he, he is the undercover boss, and Jesus became the ultimate undercover boss. He came as a servant. He came as a servant. Jesus didn't cling to his equality with the Father and the Spirit. Now, we get this backwards, and here's where we get into this whole servant thing. We, we continually strive to be God, at least in our lives. He continually submitted and obeyed, to his, obeyed his Father's plan. He said over and over, my will is to do the will of my Father in heaven, Right? He gave up his will to do the will of his Father. We often see God's word as optional. I know the Bible says this, but I'm going to do what I want to do. That's what I want to do. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, the word of God is bread. It's life. It's my total existence. We are no one and we want to be our own God, right? He is God and chose to become no one. You know, that's the amazing thing. When, when he begins to come out to his public ministry, he's chided by, by the, the religious elite. And they look at him and say, you were born of a prostitute. You were born of a woman of ill repute. Who do you think you are? Where did you get your schooling? You're no one. See, Jesus showed, shows us what it means to be a human being because he was fully human. He was completely dependent on the Father. And it's very interesting because do you want to know something? One of our biggest problems is that we're just not dependent on the Father. We want to do it. We want to take the wheel ourselves and drive the car ourselves. And so we're not relying upon the power of the Father. And look what it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 38 about, about Jesus when he was on earth. It says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Let me read that one more time. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with holy, the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for, he was, for God was with him. Now, is it possible 
I'm just throwing this out there. Is it possible that if we were fully human like Christ and we depended on the Father like Jesus did, Jesus of Nazareth did, that's speaking of his life here on earth, that we might experience the power of the Holy Spirit being God using the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives to do amazing things? I think it might be. So here's, here's what I want you to see. Jesus availed himself to what God had promised to us. The Holy Spirit and power. Just as God was with him, God is with, with us. God dwells within us. The Spirit of God dwells within us. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you another comfort. He won't be with you. He will be within you. Right? So Jesus was the perfect human. He was living as we were meant to live. And he came as a servant. He humbled himself. Uh, and he humbled himself to death on a cross. And he gave his life so that we could live. So for the rest of the time, I want to talk about, so it says, humble yourself. What does it mean to humble yourself? Um, by the way, <laughs> it's better to humble yourself than to have God or others <laughs> or life humble you. That's not a good thing. Uh, but what does it mean? What does it mean to humble yourself? It doesn't mean that you think less of yourself. It doesn't mean you walk around with a low opinion of yourself and say, I'm a horrible, terrible, awful person. I'm no good. I don't amount to much. Um, that's not what it's talking about. It doesn't mean you become a doormat or you have a low opinion. Uh, think about Jesus. Did Jesus walk around and have a low opinion of himself? No. Was he a doormat? No. Jesus uh, called himself humble, right? He, he did. He called himself humble. Did he consider himself less than others? No. He called himself God. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be sent from God. And that's why people say, well, if that's outrageous. You know, you could say he's a teacher. He's either a teacher, a good teacher, he's a, he's a, or he's delusional, or he is who he says he was. That's the argument that C.S. Lewis came up with. But he did. He claimed to be God. So it, he didn't consider himself less. Did he have a low opinion of himself? No. He was no one's doormat. <laughs> no one told Jesus, you know, you... you well, one time somebody tried. Peter tried to say, Jesus, you're not going to go to the cross. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Right? So he wasn't a doormat. He did, however, put, a, a put others first. He did, out of, he did this out of strength. It wasn't out of weakness. He set aside his power. Here's, here's the thing. Biblical humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. I I like that phrase, and I came across it a number of years ago, and I think it really is great. Biblical humility is not thinking less of yourselves. It's thinking thinking of yourself less. And, And in a sense, that's what we're talking about. So what I want to talk about is how do we know? What are some... What are some... um, practical implications of humbling ourselves how do we know or how do we do it how do we humble ourselves and there's a few things here uh let me give you a few and then we'll close with this stop keeping score when you humble yourself you stop keeping score uh scorekeeping will poison your heart have you noticed that uh we're very creative scorekeepers like like we call people on offenses, like when they do something bad to us, 
We, we, or we see somebody do something bad, we're immediately there to call it. But, but when it's us, we find a, like 101 reasons why that's okay to do it. Have you done that? We, we give ourselves the home court advantage. Have you noticed that? We do that. You may ask, oh, well, how do I know when I'm keeping score? You know you're keeping score, and the, the number one sign that you're keeping score is you complain. What's complaining? Complaining is you complain when you're behind. You complain when you're not getting enough. You complain when you're not getting a fair shake. You complain when things aren't fair. What do you do in those times? Catch yourself. Take a walk. Journal your thoughts. Pray through Scripture. But change your perspective. If you're keeping score... You're struggling in this whole servant thing. Number two, begin at home. Begin at home. Home is a hard place because you know why? Because everybody knows you at home. They really know the real you. You can put on a show at work. You can put on a show in your neighborhood. You can put on a show at school. You can put on a show, you know, with your sphere of influence people. But you can't put a show on at home. Your kids know you and your parents know you. Your family knows you. You can't hide. This is the best place to begin to serve. And and how do you do that? You choose to lose. You don't have to win every argument. You find a new and creative way to serve. You don't determine if they are worthy. You just serve them. That's one of the big things uh, that I've found in my own life is sometimes I have to justify whether I'll serve somebody. Do you deserve it? Do you really deserve it? I mean, I'll do it if you deserve it. But if you don't deserve it, I don't know if I'm willing to. Sometimes you will serve jerks who don't deserve it. You just will. You know what God's thinking sometime, something right now when I just said that? He's saying, yeah, I know. (laughs) Yeah, right? (laughs) The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What's he saying there? Jesus gave his life to a bunch of jerks, sinners, lost people, got nothing out of it. He's God. What are you going to give God, right? Do you serve only because you think they deserve it? You don't understand grace. I'm so glad that God didn't say, well, does Matt deserve it? Because if he did it, he would have moved on to somebody else. By the way, would have moved on to everyone in the human race and would have found no one deserves it. There, Paul says, no one is righteous. No, not one. Do we serve because we think uh, they deserve it? No, we don't understand grace. What is grace? And these are two older definitions and they're great. Grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. God gives me what I don't deserve. And I love the, uh, the other side of the coin. It's not really the other side of the coin, but mercy Mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. So grace is God giving me what I don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving me what I do deserve. And I'm, I'm grateful for the grace and mercy. Let me ask you a question. Here's a great question for you. If you're in, if you're in the market and you're working in the market, the service industry, whatever it is, your job, if you're a dad or a mom, can you honestly say, does your family get treated, treated as well as your best client? Oh, wait. 
Now we're starting to hit a nerve, aren't we? Right? And by the way, why do we treat our our best client that way? Because we're going to get something out of it. Do it for Jesus. That's the next point. Do it for Jesus. Uh, What if they don't respond? What if they're not grateful? What if they're not thankful? What if... Maybe you go around and your feelings are hurt all the time and they, they just don't appreciate what I do. And I know it's a number of moms you say that out loud to your kids. And you're probably right, absolutely. But here's the thing. Are you serving to get? Is it possible that you've moved into their lives to meet your needs and not theirs? Is it possible that you're serving them because you want the big thank you? You want the, oh, you, you, you're so good, you're so nice, you're so wonderful. And you go... Well, if you're going to say that, well, then I guess I just should accept it, right? The point is, you have to decide, who am I doing this for? The greatest motivation that you could ever have is, after all, it's basically what Paul says in the beginning of this letter that we read, if there's any encouragement, if there's anything that he's done for you, would you do this? You don't do it. Because they deserve it. You don't do it because you're going to get a compliment or they're going to pay you back or you're going to, they're going to do a solid for you later on. You say, God, after all that you've done for me, this is the least I can do as a way of worshiping you. See, your worth as a person must be settled when you serve others or you'll try to manipulate them. You say, I, I have to have you prop me up. Now, we often do this with the gospel, too. We do this with the gospel. Have you noticed that? Um, we often seek to uh, get, we often get, get to, we seek to get saved by, by, um, by going up. In other words, what I'm saying is, I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to believe the right thing. I'm going to be uh, in the right uh, religion. I'm, I'm going to do enough. I'm going to believe the right things. I'm going to uh, be born in the right family. Don't know how you control that, but, you know, ultimately. So the way, but, but, but the Bible says the way of being saved is going down. It's not going up. It's not me doing enough. It's not me being, being good enough, believing the right things, doing enough, serving enough, whatever it is. The way to be saved is going down. Only when I admit that, that I'm desperate and that I'm lost and that I'm a mess and then I'm hopeless and helpless. Only when I come to a place where I come to, to come to the end of the, my rope and I realize I have no hope without somebody coming to save me. So I go down. I come to a place where I, I, I'm absolutely humbled and I'm absolutely... One of the things that will keep people out of heaven is this. He, they will not humble themselves. By the way, how does this passage end? Do you remember how it ends? That at the name of Jesus, every tongue shall confess... And every knee shall bow to the glory of the Father forever. If you're not willing to humble yourself now, one day you will, but you'll be on the wrong side of heaven. Only when we cry out for help, only will we find life. We, when we go up first by going down, we must humble ourselves. It says, being in the very nature of God, he humbled himself. He was born not in a palace, but in a manger. He left his throne to hang on a, on a tree, a criminal's cross. He gave up his blessing and was cursed for us. And Deuteronomy 21 says this, Anyone who is hung 
is cursed in, in the sight of God, hung on a tree, is cursed in the sight of God. And that tree, hung on a tree, is a euphemism to crucifixion. It became a euphemism for crucifixion. And so ultimately people looked at him that day and said, you are cursed of God. Jesus demonstrates the supreme humility in his death for us. So here's, here's the countercultural principle that they've been trying to lay down from Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. And it's this. The path to happiness is found on the road called servanthood. And Jesus went down that road before us and he said, I am a servant. And I am a servant that will give my life for you. And I will die a cruel criminal's death on a cross, falsely accused for you. That's how much I love you. And so Matthew says this, because one day his disciples got into a debate and they said, I want to be good in your, I want to be great in your kingdom. How do I do that? Give me the, give me the steps to greatness in your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 20, verse 27. Whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. The key to joy and happiness in life, one of the keys of joy and happiness in life is stopping, taking your eyes off yourself and putting them on others and looking at what Christ has done for you, that he became the ultimate servant for you. And understand what he's done for you. And when you begin to allow that to seep into your life and you begin to look to others, you'll find happiness, you'll find joy. But you won't find it the way the world says. The world says greatness, happiness is found in having a lot of servants. And the Bible says greatness and happiness and joy is found in serving a lot of people. Because that's what Christ did. And he was more fully human than we will ever be. But he showed us how to live. And he showed us the path to happiness. And it comes through serving. Serving God and serving others. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, the lecture is over and the lab begins. It's really, we've talked about a lot of, 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 of important things. And I don't know what part of the message of your word will speak to each and every individual heart. It may be that there are proud hearts out there today that uh, just aren't willing to humble themselves. It may be there are people out there today, Father, who are trying to work very, very hard and be very, very good so that one day you will accept them. They're trying to go up and earn their salvation. Help them to see that they need to go down. And they need to see their utter ruin and despair and lostness and helpless and hopelessness. That they cry out to you and say, Jesus, I'm lost. And unless you come into my life and save me, I have no hope. But there is hope, Father, because your word tells us whoever calls on the name of the Lord, shall be saved. If there's anyone here today, Father, that has never called out to Jesus and said, Jesus, my life is empty without you. I desperately need a Savior. I'm going to stop trying to save myself. 
And I'm bowing and humbling myself before the cross and crying out to you as the only one who can save my soul. You gave your life to me and now I give my life to you. And Father, if somebody has prayed a prayer like that, even now, I pray that they would let somebody know that they've crossed that line of faith and their faith is no longer in themselves, but it's in you. For the rest of us, Father, help us to walk humbly, to understand that uh, we have the greatest example of a human being that's ever walked this earth, and his name was Jesus, and that he showed us how to live by serving. Help us, Father, to be your servants and to serve others as we have been served by your Son, Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.